don't think the AI is your product. That's the mistake. Use AI, sprinkle a little bit of that magic to help that workflow, but don't think that your entire product is AI. That is a mistake. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today on the podcast, we're talking AI. I have the CEO of Fireflies AI. They are your personal AI meeting assistant. They've been around for approaching seven years. They've raised over $14 million. They've done something like over 500 years of video meeting AI content. It's, it's really insane, but this one's a fun one. If you're at all interested in hearing how he grew in the early days on the back of not founder-led growth, not sales-led growth, but product-led growth. I think you'll really like this one. He also talks about how he's grown as a CEO from being a two-person startup to a startup with over 100 companies and his kind of superpower and how he's been able to level up his game, how he manages his week. He also talks about how he manages keeping up with all the changes with AI. If he were starting a startup today, what he would do in AI. So it's a really fun episode if you're at all interested in doing something around that category. Really hope you enjoy today's episode. All right, today on the podcast, I got someone I didn't realize, but it's probably less than two and a half miles from me. We could have done this in person. I could have crashed your your pad you got there. But someone that's doing some really cool stuff in AI and startups was in San Francisco. Now he made the right move. He's in Seattle. So we're going to talk everything, starting startups, all the mistakes that you should not make that you made and might do a little AI talk. Chris, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Jim, and uh, excited to have this conversation. Yeah. So before I pepper you with questions that are in a nonlinear fashion at all, like introduce yourself and like real quickly, like talk to me about your company and Fireflies and what is it? Yeah, so Fireflies is an AI meeting assistant. It joins your meetings across Zoom, Meet, Teams, all the major video conferencing platforms. It records, transcribes, takes notes, summarizes, analyzes all of your conversations. And in reality, it's your chief of staff that follows you around, writes things down, and helps you remember and have perfect recall over every conversation you had, whether it was last week, yesterday, or three years ago. We started with a very simple premise, and I think my own background and experience has been where I've worked in big tech, I worked at Microsoft, I was a PM there right out of college, and I realized culturally how much time people spend in meetings. If you're in management, almost 80% of your time. If you're a knowledge worker, probably 50% of your time. So almost everything is done in meetings. And as a result, we said, okay, what if we can help capture and remember all this information. The most important information that a business creates originates in meetings. So that was the initial founding stone or inspiration for Fireflies. And we just started building on that. Yeah, it's so funny. Like I would get so confused at the, when I was at like a KPMG and bigger companies, you're in a meeting you look at the 10 people around the room and you think of their hourly rate and like eight of these people don't need to be there. It's so inefficient. And we're not even like 
maximizing the impact of this. And so it's how do we like make the most out of it? And I, I like the positioning of your chief of staff that follows you around. Cause I agree. I feel like when you use this tool, it gives you superpowers. And just for the listener, no, this isn't like some fad, like you launched this last week on the back of the AI trend. Like you've been at this for a while and you, you've been in the AI space. And can you, just so people know the scale, can you give any more color of like the size of the team or any numbers on fundraising, just so people have uh, more color? We're about a hundred people today. Fireflies has taken notes for over 10 million people across 200,000 organizations. So 70% of Fortune 500 companies are included there. So that's probably like someone at a Fortune 500 company has either invited or gotten notes from Fireflies. We've done 5,000 years worth of meetings. If you had to attend every single meeting that Fireflies had to attend in the past year, that would take you 5,000 years. Those are, those are some impressive stats. And 100 people, man, it's like, they talk about these breaking points of businesses. You've had to go through different phases of growth. Like, kind of walk us through that linear story a little bit as far as how did you have the early days of coming up with this idea and then breaking out to actually do this in those early days of traction? Early days was me and my co-founder literally sitting in a co-working space and hacking things together. Then we went remote. We never looked back. So even as a two-person team, we were fully remote. And then we decided to build the company in a remote manner. So we have folks in 40 cities, 20 countries, and that's been a primary part of our DNA. And we're also the best testers of our own product because it works great in a remote setting. I think that we tend to value folks that are able to do things from zero to one. And what I mean by that is not someone that came in when a process was already established and then grew it, but someone that went in and defined that process. That's very first principles thinking. But I have so much more respect for someone that's gone in and done things from scratch than taken on the legacy of someone else. And it's very hard, right, when you hire people to ask yourself, were they successful because the business was successful? Or was the business successful because of what they did? And some of the best companies have such an amazing brand that a mediocre hire gets carried by that brand and looks like a superstar. And learning to discern that is a very difficult skill, but you have to catch a lot of BS. You have to understand, read between the lines. All of these things have to happen. But I do think from a breaking point, we do believe small teams can get a lot done. And we intentionally try to keep this team small. We don't want to hire until we feel like the pain of not hiring that role, because then you're only hiring because you absolutely need it. So all of these are counterintuitive to the Valley philosophy of overhiring. And then you can always fire a bunch of people later. We don't believe that's the right cultural approach. We hire slowly, intentionally, on purpose and we hire and promote internally. Yeah, it's so interesting. I have fallen prey or guilty to, like you see a resume come across like, oh, they worked at Stripe, they worked at Slack, or they like were the VP of sales for insert fancy name or logo. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, they must be good just from association. And I have been burned by that like more times than I have succeeded. And so you hit on something around promoting internally, where I feel like a lot of times like, oh, get the been there, done that, have someone swoop in. How are you 
creating a culture or a system where you're able to like nurture these people to grow internally. You talk about one, getting the person that can go from zero to one, the first principle from first principle thinkers. So kind of original thinkers that aren't just trying to copy and paste. Like what else? Because that's a playbook that like at, at our, at our, I have a growth marketing agency that, that we're seeing more success with as well. And I think I need to double down on the strategy behind it. Early on, generalists are the right approach to take because they're going to be able to figure out things in a lot of uncertainty. And as long as they have a high ceiling for learning and adaptability, no matter what problem that gets thrown their way, they're able to understand it, break it down and solve it. I think that as you grow over time, there's a temptation to hire specialists that can do one area really well. And maybe sometimes you need to do that. You're working on a distributed systems problem and you need a specialist for that. But in general, the way software is moving, at least, you can still get a lot done with generalists. And are they able to update themselves, right? If the company's moving really quickly, are they moving faster to stay ahead of the curve? The times when you need to one-up someone or hire someone that's from the outside is if just the skills gap and then the stretch is not possible. So as much as we like to, we try to give people the opportunity to grow into the role, take on more responsibility gradually over time so that it doesn't feel like they're being overstretched. But, you know, maybe it's an executive role and you just know that some of these folks are not really going to be built to be management, but they're going to be amazing individual contributors and they should continue to do the things they do. Or they're great at working with two to three people, but doing performance reviews for a dozen people and managing a bunch of people may not even be right up their area of interest. So always find what people are good at, what they enjoy doing, and then equip them with superpowers, give them the resources and let them run. I love the phrase you said, update themselves as people are a piece of software. How have you updated yourself from like you and your co-founder, like on Zoom together, all of a sudden there's a hundred people. Like what did you have to get strong at or what did you have to fire yourself from or delegate yourself um, out of? Like any color there, because it's kind of hard sometimes to see CEOs that can really grow through all these different phases. The most important lesson I've learned as a CEO is learning to say no, because everyone wants you to do something for them or request some piece of your time, whether it's investors, vendors, customers, team, and learning to prioritize your time by saying no to the things that are not important or critical and being a little unapologetic for it. Because I'm always about not hurting people's feelings and being very kind and understanding at an expense to my own time and resources. So time is your most precious resource. Time is your most precious resource. So learning to say no and optimizing for those things that actually matter. And that is a skill that lets you eventually figure out when you need to delegate versus when you need to do it something yourself. It's a skill that helps you understand why are we spending cycles on this? We should just ship it and see what happens, right? This new feature or functionality. The more you have to pointificate and discuss and overanalyze, sometimes it's not even worth it, right? And I think this is where a lot of amazing things get lost in large companies is because people are talking about things so much rather than doing things. I think the other part of this role and responsibility is being able to zoom in and out frequently. I need to be able to zoom in and actually roll up my sleeves and do the work. I need to know 
what's being done at the infrastructure level, at the pricing level, at the go-to-market level. Talk about wearing different hats, right? People say if you're a product manager, you wear different hats. Well, if you're a founder, it's 10 times that. It's it's very much about wearing hats, shifting context, but then zooming out and also being able to still think strategically about the chess game that's at play. And how do you think 10 steps ahead versus how do you zoom in and look at like the next two weeks, what needs to be done? Switching context, zooming in and out is a skill you've got to learn. Is there a way you set up your week or workflow to manage the zooming in, zooming out or switching context? Like for example, like at the agency, I still do sales, but then I like run the executive team, I do marketing stuff, and then we just acquired a company. So I'm like putting my marker hat on there. And I've had issues where if I have back-to-back meetings that are across all of those, it's really hard. And I've been trying to have like, okay, Mondays are sales days, Tuesdays are like management days, Fridays creative day. Hey, do I stick to that? Sometimes, but not always. Like what have you done to try and scale that or manage that? It's very hard and I can only imagine how it is switching context. One thing that I like to do is allocate days for when I have meetings and days for when I can do deep, thoughtful work. I think that maker versus manager schedule is really important because when I do meetings, I like to have 10 meetings back to back. I'd rather do that than have like two meetings over the span of the next five days. I hate context switching. So for me, if I'm in meeting mode, if I'm doing podcasts or talking to investors, I want to do like 10 back to back. That's how I get into the momentum, the flow, and it helps me focus. When I'm doing deep creative work like design, product, R&D, then I want to spend as much time around those folks for that extended period of time, whether it's one to two days, because then your thought process can realign, your gears shift, you can let some of these things marinate. And you can focus on a lot of those things. So the way I schedule my week is really based on the challenges and areas that require the most attention. So some days it may require something to do with like payroll and hiring. So I spend like that a lot of that time around that theme. But every day is different. Like, for example, over the last couple of weeks, we were acquiring a team of engineers from another company. And that was something that was new, right? I had never done like this sort of acquisition type thing before. How do you get them onboarded? How do you get them set up? How do you make sure that they're culturally integrated? And again, there's companies that do M&A at like the scale of thousands of employees, right? And a lot of times M&As fail because you're not able to integrate the talent well in. I had no experience doing this in the past, but that's something where I dedicated myself to learning that and making sure that we got that team of 10 people seamlessly integrated into Fireflies and make sure that there is no disruption to the overall org structure, right? You need to do a reorg. You need to incorporate them into different teams. So these are the sort of things that I had to deal with. And then the next day, I might be dealing with something completely different, like, hey, OpenAI wants to do some announcement or some project update. How does that impact our timelines for announcing some of the work we're doing? So every day is a different challenge. That's part of the way reason I love it. But it's also the reason why you have to be very flexible and adapt. That's very cool with the Aqua hire. And you brought up a good point around like the Paul Graham article, the maker versus manager schedule that people should check out. Because I totally agree. I'm all about batching the meetings. It can be exhausting, but it's it's the way to go. Okay, but sorry to backtrack a little bit. I do want to hear. So that's really cool to hear like the evolution of you as you're like running this company. 
talk to me about those early days. People are always interested with a company that's at your size and scale. Like, how the heck do you go from idea to your first hundred customers? Like, what did you do in those early days? And kind of give me the color around were you bootstrapping this at that phase, or did you raise money as you're getting those first like hundred users or customers? We were relatively bootstrapped. We put our own money into it. So my co-founder and I, Sam and I, literally moved to San Francisco. We took a few thousand dollars and that was the starting point of the company. Then we were able to get some small checks from funds that were helping entrepreneurs, you know, college entrepreneurs. So angel-like checks that helped us pay for our servers, for food, for rent, literally everything just to like survive, right? My co-founder has this incredible post around being on Soylent and like literally having his entire meals be Soylent. Uh, and yeah, he was able to save money and he was able to focus on work. He's like, eating was a waste of time back then, as funny as it is. It's such a Silicon Valley thing to do. But yeah, it was the early days were difficult, but because it was difficult, it taught us the value of bootstrapping and being resourceful and keeping burn low and learning to manage with limited resources. We were able to build out our MVP. We got customers, some of our own paid customers, and then we raised our seed round in 2019 after two years of literally battling out, building out the technology. So end of 2019, we raised our seed round. And then the following year, 2021, we announced our Series A. But all of that journey, right, was that we had to, because we didn't have an established brand. Like we went to great schools. I went to UPenn and my co-founder went to MIT, but that doesn't mean much in the Valley other than maybe opens up a few doors for interactions. It's about what you're doing and what you've built. And people respect results. They don't respect ideas as much as you see in the TV shows. Because if I were to be an investor. And I'm talking to this founder, he has this great idea. And I'm excited. It's like, great. I'll, I'll let's keep in touch. And then six months later, you're pitching the same idea, but you haven't had any traction. Like, how do I have the conviction to connect the dots and invest in you? Right? If you're one of those lucky few where you're a second time founder, third time founder, you have a brand that you built or during the heyday of 2021, any ex Googler with like, a notion doc and a general idea was getting some funding, those were weird times, right? But now it's like, show me your product, show me your customers, show me potential for revenue, and show me that you are the right type of founder to bet on. Why should I bet on YouTube and not like one of the other platforms that was out there, right? That didn't really get to scale to the size of YouTube. So yeah, our early days were definitely tough and we had to build things from scratch because we didn't have the luxury of going in and asking someone, you don't have anything built out, give us money because, you know, just trust us. Like we had to really prove ourselves every step along the way. So you're proving yourself, you have to show results. It sounds like you and your partner lean more on the technical side than the growth and marketing side. So what are you doing to prove results? Are you like in community boards? Are you begging friends? Are you buying billboards on the highway? Like what, like what, what's the move? Yeah, buying billboards is very expensive, by the way, and you're willing to spend millions of dollars and not being able to measure ROI. I'm sure there is ROI, but it's much harder to measure like the ROI of the billboard, in my opinion. But switching to getting your first 100 customers, it's the most different for different companies. 
So sales-led founders are going to be doing a bunch of cold emailing, cold calling, hustle, and grit. And then marketing founders might do a bunch of SEO and trying to like capture inbound leads. If you are a product-led founder like we are, you're going to try to build some virality into the product and drive like sharing and word of mouth. So those first 100 customers are going to come from different channels. We tried all of them, to be honest. I think I told myself very early on, based on my personality, that I would not ever do cold emails and cold calling again because I don't want to approach someone out of the blue and then try to justify the value and then convince them to sell. Especially when you're selling a $10 product, it just does not scale. But at the same time, I wanted to build a product where people get excited talking about it and want to share it. And so when you see Fireflies on a meeting and you're like, wow, what is this? This is pretty cool. Let me try using it as well. And your customers are doing the marketing for you. That's amazing. And then if someone comes in and says, like, I would like to learn more, we'll make sure that they have a wonderful experience. But I want people coming in informed and educated. That's my philosophy to building the company, my co-founder's philosophy to building the company. You go talk to a sales ex-sales leader who's like a founder, they'll probably say, no, you got to go and knock. You got to hustle. You got to grit. I'm sure you'll see tons of Instagram reels about like knocking and getting a thousand no's from people and knocking on doors and stuff. Great. If you can do that and that's your strength by all means. But I think my personality was that I always felt like, oh, I don't want to bother someone if they're not interested. Like I feel like I'm in, being too intrusive. So my philosophy was I'm going to build something so good and I'm going to make sure that we're going to get those five, 10 people that that were naturally interested in it so happy and really satisfied with the product that they are going to go share it with other people. And that's the common philosophy, right? It's better to have like 10 people that love you than 100 people that sort of like you. Yeah. It, it's, it sounds like so obvious to essentially like make an amazing product that it markets itself and your customers become your marketers. But it's like, it's actually really hard to make an amazing product. So people are like, no, I just want to find this hack or tactic. And for people listening to this idea like product-led growth, you guys have it in such a phenomenal way because to use the product, it's naturally, it has to be viral, right? Because it's on meetings. You have this mini banner that's like, fireflies and you're like what is that and then if you can see the note recap it's this magic moment of like yeah i want that like assistant following me around that'd be amazing so so it's so very cool i will say it's a myth to think that if you build it they will come that is longer from the truth you can have one of the best products and still not have distribution figured out and no one knows about it so distribution is really important whether that is virality, marketing, paid ads, whatever it is, distribution is absolutely important. Building a great product is half the battle. Distribution is the other half the battle. And so often, and I fell into this trap too, I thought like, I build this great product, that's enough. No, yeah. you've got to like light the fire. There needs to be some sort of catalyst to start the engine. And that's what makes founding a startup so difficult. And that's why like, if you look at the consumer world, you sometimes think like, wow, some of these companies, the way they just caught on fire was like pure luck. It's pure right. magic. In B2B, it's much more predictable and you can do it. But for every Twitter, there's like a hundred other alternatives out there back in the day. For every like dating app, there were probably like a dozen others that were trying to do the same thing. The difference was maybe they had more funding so they could burn more money on capital and solve distribution, brute force it. Like think about how many delivery, food delivery apps there were back in the day. Now you're consolidated. So 
people were willing to raise a ton of capital, dilute themselves, throw money into marketing. So don't ever get that wrong. And this is the consumer world. Some of those companies, the reason they're successful is because they literally lit up money on fire. Again, that's not how I would build a company, but it's not because their product was any better. They had to get better at scale, like to service lots of customers. But sometimes that initial thing could be a mediocre product with great distribution still somehow wins out. And that's sad reality because I would always keep building these products that I thought were like, hey, this, this is so cool. And people say this is so cool, but why isn't it like picking up off the ground? It's because you need a critical mass, like some form of traction to get the ball rolling. Yeah. What's the quote? It's like first time founders focus on products, second time founders focus on distribution. That totally supports your point, right? It's like you've, you've got to have that down. No, very cool. So you've like, you've been in the AI space for, for quite a while and it's pretty cool as it's, it's emerging and like becoming more and more mainstream. Like you, you guys just have this kind of like lead on it. But if you, if you are starting today, right, it's going into 2024, you're like, I want to do something in AI. Uh, you and I are talking just as Sam Alba and Nova and I talked about like the, the GPTs. And I saw like the integration with Zapier. I was like, oh, that looks pretty sweet. Like, how would you think through approaching that opportunity, right? It's like, okay, like, where would your head go on, like, how to approach it? What ideas would come up from it or, or what to start? In the past, everyone would build a mobile app or web app or desktop app or Chrome extension. And then they would try to figure out how to make that application be intelligent or provide some sort of value to the end user, whether that was some sort of analytics or some sort of workflow magic. Today the intelligence is becoming the commodity. It's flipped on its head, right? Intelligence is accessible at an API call or a press of a button, but actually building a really good interface and capturing that value and workflow is actually very important. So I would honestly think about building something, not because the technology is cool or that you can implement this crazy AI into it, but think from a first principles approach of, what business problem am I trying to solve? And how can AI help me? Like every product that's built from here on out is going to incorporate some form of AI. It's like the equivalent of saying, oh, I'm going to build a web startup. Yeah, it's obviously going to be in the cloud. Where else is it going to be, right? So obviously going to use AI in some shape or form. Like what else are you going to do? Manually click stuff? So that's how the world is evolving. But don't think the AI is your product. That's the mistake. Use AI, sprinkle a little bit of that magic to help that workflow, but don't think that your entire product is AI. Like that is a mistake where you fall in love with the technology rather than the end output and the problem that you are solving. And I would also say with OpenAI's announcements at the Dev Day, the biggest change is they've raised the bar. So before, maybe a year ago, you can come out with like a nice GPT wrapper and call it a product where your differentiation is UI. But now the bar is much higher, right? When the iPhone was first released, you can go viral with Flappy Birds or like a flashlight type app. Right. Many of those things are built in now. You got to raise the bar. You can't just be a nice little widget. You got to be an actual product. That's interesting. So I'm hearing it's like the, the product isn't just AI and look at this. It's like, 
looking for a real business problem and how do you use AI to solve that maybe better, faster, cheaper, more cost-effective ways. I'm also like, I'm interested in like industries where like maybe AI has been used to help solve a problem in one industry, but it hasn't been in, in another. Are there any like categories that you're, obviously you're like very focused on fireflies and the growth there, but you're like, oh man, that thing is ripe for disruption. Like AI could really help solve some problems there. I'm sure there's some categories where there's a lot of money to be made, like insurance, healthcare, some of these like industries where you have mechanical manual processes that you can significantly streamline. I think those sort of industries are going to be really powerful. One of the industries I'm particularly interested in is in the pharma drug discovery, using LLMs to come up with all these potential experiments and different drug combinations could help you do drug discovery faster, right? Now you're just able to take all of the stuff and synthesize a bunch of different variations and come up and do a bunch of different experiments. What usually takes humans a long time with permutations and combinations with a hint of creativity, I think AI can help ex expedite that. If you're a designer and you were not using some of these tools like Midjourney in the past, you can maybe come up with one or two iterations and then have your team design pick from it. Now you have the ability to create 20 different variations and then pick the best one from that and optimize that. So that's the thing, like even existing functionality and roles are not going to disappear. It's just that now the level is a lot higher, right? If you think about the Kodak uh, camera versus now I can take a thousand photos on my digital DSLR. It's not that the role of the photographer went away, but like your expectation of creating the best photo has gone significantly up. I remember as my family, they're very involved back in India in the film business. One of the things was back then film was done on tape, right? When you're shooting a movie. So you could, you have only a certain amount of reel before you have to re replace that reel. Now with like these digital, you know, video cameras, people can shoot on and on and on and on and like do the same scene a thousand times. And you realize that it's not, there's no constraint. Same with CGI. So like think about all these industries, right? Like I think even for podcasting, there was one where if you have two cameras and they're constantly shifting, you have to manually as an editor edit each frame. But now there's AI that can just edit your entire podcast. So like I like to think about it as like, what is like a task? What was the world before AI? And how can the world be different after AI? Yeah, I think that's a really good approach. It's like, what is now possible to do faster, cheaper? Like, for example, like we've been using like Jasper AI and Copy AI. It's been great for copywriting, for ads, landing pages, and emails. Recently, what's been interesting is there's a few tools coming out where like for we have like fashion brands we work with where instead of spending $20,000 on a photo shoot, can we like create a model and put our shirt on it on the model and make it look real? And it's some of the images aren't as ideal, but it's like it's getting there. And it's like, man, that's going to be such a huge unlock if, if we figure that out. But I think your ideas around healthcare and pharma are um, a, a little bit bigger than mine of like, how do I just make ads better <laughs> for some of our clients? But very cool. I'm interested in 
you, you, the thing that's exciting about being in tech and AI, it's fast, it's moving, it's innovative. You get amazing valuations, amazing growth. But the flip side, it's like, you know, you are building on something that is growing and evolving, which can be a great opportunity and it's a great risk. Like what happens when you get like a notification, it's like, oh, OpenAI made this update or, oh, wow, did you just see Sam Altman's talk? Did you see the new thing? What are you doing? Like, what's the psychology of, of managing that? Because it's got to be exciting, but it's also like, it might not make you sleep as well at night. Like, how do you manage that? We're fortunate to be in a space that is constantly changing and constantly keeps you excited about developments. So the rate of shipping for us, we're updating things on a daily, weekly basis. And the product is getting infinitely better because of that rate of change. And then I know other industries where for 10 years, they're doing the same processes, same brick and mortar style functionality. You, you sometimes wonder, right? For example, you go to the dentist's office and you wonder, wow, they're still like doing everything with a pen and paper and then manually making phone calls and sending reminders. Like all of this can be streamlined and automated, but people have a way of doing business and they want to be comfortable with that. So I can kind of take that to the extreme and say like, wow, I believe that there should be some level of streamlining that happens. Give a classic example of this, like that's even in the tech world is you have to meet investors face to face. Like that's like a big deal for people before they write like big checks for you. I'm the type of person where it's like, well, we can achieve the same stuff on a video call. And in fact, it'll be faster. You don't have to spend 45 minutes driving all the way to come see me. So I've had investors fly out to come meet me. And I say like, look, you don't have to do that. We can just hop on a call, a video call and get all the same. But it's for them. It's the part of doing business, looking you in the eye and learning about you. So there's some personal element to it. And so there's some relationships based businesses where that doesn't change. I found that like with the AI space, like from building products and doing these sort of things, you have to constantly stay aware and know that you have to throw certain things you built out the window because certain new changes and paradigms completely alter the landscape. So that's also a really hard skill to develop. And there are many people that grip onto old ways and don't want to throw those old processes out of the window. So the AI industry rewards people that are constantly innovating. Traditions don't necessarily last because it just changes. So does that mean like what I prefer being in an industry where I have like some sort of unique edge and I don't have to change anything about my business and I just continue operating and it's easy? Maybe, but I think that would be really boring. So I actually like the fact that there's all these changes coming out. Oh, OpenAI came up with all these updates. Amazing. So let's work with them and we partner with them. And like, how do we leverage that faster and create more value for customers, right? Like how do we keep blowing things out of the water for customers? So there's an excitement to that. I, I think I would be way too bored, let alone I'd be bored at like a big company where we're shipping only one product every year. I'd be too bored. Yeah, no. And that's also your advantage. If you have a team that's agile, can keep up that pace. If you're like staying on top of it, other companies that don't move at that cadence, it, it, it just won't sustain, right? Well, very cool. Well, one last question I always like to ask is what is the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? There's been so many people that have been so helpful along the way in our journey. So it's hard to say one, but I think 
I've had a few folks who were great advisors, especially when we were raising money and there was no vested interest for them to like help me figure out how to present to investors, how to position our you know, deck and all of those data and financials who had gone through it themselves, ex-founders, ex-VCs, who were kind enough to like sit down for several hours and go line by line and to help help us out. And they were not getting any financial benefit or reward from it. So I always think that if you have the opportunity to learn from people that have done it, definitely take it. And you need to absorb everything like a sponge. So I was fortunate that when I asked for help, there were people out there that were willing to help me. And then I asked them afterwards, you know, why did you help me? Like, you know, you, there was no reason. And they said, look, I see potential. And I think we don't want to see talent go to waste. So if me helping you alters your trajectory by 5%, which ends up becoming 50% in the future, I think I am paying it forward. So I've taken that sort of mindset as well when I help other entrepreneurs and other founders. It's not because I have some vested interests and that I'm capitalizing on it, but it's the idea that you're building a community and those people will, you, if you truly believe it, and go on to change the world. No, that's cool. Especially those early days when you're like very new to certain things. It's like that. That's everything. Well, Chris, thank you so much, man. Very impressive what you've done. And thanks for thanks for the time. Absolutely. Thanks. I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out GrowthHit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthHit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where remotely talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, 
Give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose.